This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So here are a handful of poems from Ted Hughes from about 1986 to 1997. This is everything uh, that I haven't read yet that leads up to his 1998 book about Sylvia Plath called Birthday Letters, and I'm going to save that for an episode next week. Uh, And you can sort of see, uh, I guess... uh, Perhaps this is Ted Hughes' uh, Wordsworth phase, who was supposed to have sort of dipped a bit as he got older. It's also true that uh, from the late 80s to, I believe, 1990 or 91, uh, Hughes spent an immense amount of time, time that he seems to have regretted later, uh, working on his book about Shakespeare and um, not necessarily focusing too much on the poetry. But there are still some good bits here, and here are, just to start, here are two poems from his 1986 book called Flowers and Insects, and the first one is called, get there, Two Tortoise Shell Butterflies. This is what it says. Mid-May, after May frosts that killed the camellias, after May snow, after a winter worst in human history, a freeze killing the hundred-year-old bay tree, and the ten-year-old bay tree, suddenly a warm limpness, a blue heaven just veiled with the sweatings of earth, and with the sweatings out of winter, feverish under the piled mayware of the lawn. Now two tortoiseshell butterflies, finding themselves alive. She drunk with the earth sweat, and he drunk with her. Float in eddies over the daisy's quilt. She prefers dandelions, settling to nod her long spring tongue down into the nestling pleats, into the flower's thick-folded throat, her wings high-folded. He, settling behind her among plain glistenings of the new grass, edging and twitching to nearly touch, pulsing and convulsing, wings wide open to tight closed to flat open, quivering to keep her so near, almost reaching to stroke her abdomen with his antenna. Then she's up and away, and he, 
startlingly swallow-like, overtaking, crowding her, heading her off any escape. She turns that to her purpose and veers down onto another dandelion, attaching her weightless yacht to its crest, wobbles to stronger hold, to deeper, sweeter penetration, her wings tight shut above her, a sealed book, absorbed in itself. She ignores him, where he edges to left and to right, flitting his wings open, titillating her fur with his perfumed draughts, spasming his patterns, his tropical pheasant appeals of folk art, venturing closer, grass blade by grass blade, trembling with inhibition, nearly touching. And again she's away, dithering blackly. He swoops on an elastic to settle accurately under her tail again as she clamps to this time a daisy. She's been chosen, courtship has claimed her, and he's been conscripted to what's required of the splitting bud of the talented robin that performs piercings out of the still bare ash, the whole air just like him, just breathing, over the still-turned-inward earth, the first caresses of the wedding coming, the earth opening its petals, the whole sky opening a flower of unfathomably patterned pollen. And this next one is called Sunstruck Foxglove, and it ends with the same word as that last poem. And I believe the biographies say that this is uh, a poem about one of Hughes's mistresses in the uh, mid-80s or so. And it says, As you bend to touch the gypsy girl who waits for you in the hedge, her loose dress falls open. Midsummer ditch sickness, flushed, freckled with earth fever, swollen lips parted, her eyes closing, a lolling armful and so young, hot among the insane spiders. You glimpse the reptile under speckle of her sunburned breasts, and your head swims, you close your eyes. Can the foxes talk? Your head throbs. Remember the bird's tolling echo, the dripping fern roots and the butterfly touches that woke you. Remember your mother's long, dark dugs, her silky body a soft oven for loaves of pollen. And for some reason, this next poem was published uh, in a magazine or newspaper in Hughes's lifetime, but it was never put into a book. Uh, this has always been one of the funnier ones that he wrote, uh, at least for me. It's called Devon Riviera. Under the silk nighty of the August evening, the prepared resort, a glowing liner, leans toward happiness, unmoving. The whole vessel throbs with dewy longing. Gray, dazed heads promenading their pots, their holiday shirts, 
their shrunk, freckled forearms, with hobbling wives who look more like their mothers, smell rejuvenation in the ebb, and lard thickened ex-footballers with their high-tension scowls, trailing headache wives and swollen kids towards another compulsory steak and chips, sniff the beery skirts of liberation. Mauve-dusted, balanced pairs of spinsters, walking to interest and appetite, venture their compass-delicate stomachs among guffaws and squeals and gaping perfumes. Decent couples, rigid with loneliness, expose themselves intermittently with buttoned faces to the furnace interiors of fun halls. And easy girls from the north, their half-closed eyes fixed on the wine-dark sea haze towards Jersey, loll back in cliff alcoves above the town outfall while waiters from Pisa gnaw their necks. They see gulls dangling stainless cries and colliding for tossed-up fish guts above my chugging boat that nudges happily home through the purple, hauling the rich robe of sewage. That's as close as Hughes ever got to a uh, protest poem about the super-rich, I suppose. Or just the things the middle class uh, demands. Here are two poems from his 1989 book called Wolf Watching. And the first one is called For the Duration. I felt a strange fear when the war talk, like a creeping barrage, approached you. Jig and jag, I'd fitted much of it together. Our treasure, your DCM, again and again carrying in the wounded, collapsing with exhaustion. And as you collapsed, a shell burst, just in front of you, lifting you upright for the last somnambulist yards before you fell under your load into the trench. The shell, some other time, that buried itself between your feet as you walked and thoughtfully failed to go off. The shrapnel hole over your heart, how it spun you. The blue scar of the bullet at your ankle from a traversing machine gun that tripped you as you cleared the parapet. Meanwhile, the horrors were doled out Everybody had his appalling tale, but what alarmed me most was your silence, your refusal to tell. I had to hear from others what you survived and what you did. Maybe you didn't want to frighten me. Now it's too late. Now I'd ask you shamelessly, but then I felt ashamed. What was my shame? Why? Why couldn't I have borne to hear you telling what you underwent? Why was your war so much more unbearable than anyone else's, as if nobody else knew how to remember? After some uncle's virtuoso tale of survival that made me marvel and laugh, I looked at your face, your cigarette like a dialed finger, and my mind stopped with numbness.
Your day silence was the coma, out of which your night dreams rose, shouting. I could hear you from my bedroom, the whole hopelessness still going on. No man's land still crying and burning inside our house. And you, climbing again out of the trench, and wading back into the glare, as if you might still not manage to reach us and carry us to safety. And that is, I believe, the last poem that Hughes wrote about World War I and the last poem he wrote about his father, his father's reticence about talking about World War I. And this is a poem called Take What You Want But Pay For It. Part one. Weary of the cries, God spoke to the soul of Adam, saying, Give me your body. And he took Adam's body and nailed it to a stake, saying, This great beast shall destroy your peace no more. Then God fortified with buttresses his house's walls, and so devised a prison for the contorted body of the beast. Outside, the soul, in a shroud, glorified the majesty of the defensive structure, towards which it fled from the enclosing and unappeasable cry of the surrounding bush. Once inside the locked sanctuary, and seeing its own body nailed down to silence, harmless, and no longer thirsting, it wept astounded at the finished and cold beauty of its own torment, and the stony peace cupped it like hands, and breathed into it grace. No longer life, simply grace, whispering, this is grace. Part two. Then the soul of Adam gasped as if in airlessness, and there came in from his hands and feet, up through his bowels and in through his shoulders and down, from all the sutures of his skull, a single cry braiding together all the uncried cries, his body could no longer cry, a single flagellant thong with which he drove his ghostly being shuddering back into the body, and in that sudden inrush of renewal, the nailed feet and the hands tore free of the nails, and he fell from the empty gibbet to earth, and tried to rise and raised his blood-anointed head, and tried to cry but could not move. Only raised the blood mask, and its effort in his broken attempt to get up. Then God withdrew, horrified, almost afraid, as he saw exhaling from the black pits of each nail hole and from each gouged inscription of blood an ectoplasm, bluish, and from the blackest pit of all that issued the despair and its noise a misty enfoldment which materialized as a musing woman who lifted the body as a child's effortless, and walked out of the prison with it, singing gently. And as I've said here before, I think especially in the last episode, last two episodes, 
uh, his, Ted Hughes' strengths were in the 70s. And um, everything that he writes afterwards that is at its strongest, at least to me, either looks back to Crow, which uh, I think take what you want but pay for it does, or it looks back to the straight uh, nature poems he did in the late 70s, which I think some of the others do here. Um, take what you want but pay for it seems almost like a leftover from Crow, but also does not have quite its edge either. Uh, let's see here. And one more poem here. This is another one that was uncollected, written from written uh, between 1982 and 1997, called Mother Tongue. I hear her talking. She is trying out a flute. Not the flute, but the flute's notes. Not the flute's notes, but the ceilings and the floors of the flute's palace. And all the winding stairs at dancing to the searching voice of the flute. Now she sways over a cello. The hairs of the bow are the hairs of my body miraculously lengthened. She regards them as hers. She uses them with abandon flings her arm in the hand holding the bow. The strings of the cello are the fibers of the umbilicus we shared long ago. So long ago my memory of our sharing it in the cave mouth is lost, far beyond the event horizon, in the black hole out of which her music still pours. Again, at least to me, whatever you make of that poem, Sounds like a leftover from a story from Crow. Now, in 1997, Hughes published a book called Tales from Ovid. And uh, it's a huge book. And I enjoyed a lot of it, but uh, I'm only going to read one of the poems here because they're all uh, quite long. And as much as I do like them, they are still, and even though it's not a strict translation of Ovid, it is still Hughes trying to be somebody else. He's putting out a voice that isn't naturally his. Um, but it makes sense that it's Ovid too, because the poet that Hughes most admired was Shakespeare, and the poet that Shakespeare got the most from was Ovid. And the one I'll read here seems closest to... Uh, what people seem to have believed of Hughes's life, the Hughes myth, um, but also uh, the closest to his concerns in poetry, which is uh, sex, violence, and the violence that love and infatuation and sex can lead to and the destruction of family that it can lead to. Um, for those of you who haven't read, read it in Ovid, you might as well go back and read it if you like what you uh, are about to hear. And for those who know their T.S. Eliot, their wasteland, um, this is one of the poems in Ovid's Metamorphoses that T.S. Eliot references in the wasteland. And indeed, uh, this is that is where I first encountered Ovid and this story. There's a brutal story of King uh, Terius and what he does 
to his sister's wife. And this is a fairly long poem, but uh, it moves with the way that Hughes is able to do this. So let's give this a try. Pandion, the king of Athens, saw King Tereus was rich and powerful as himself. He was also descended from the god Mars, so Pandion gave his daughter to Tereus and thought himself happy. Hymen and Juno and the Graces, those deities who bless brides, shunned this marriage. Instead, the bridal bed was prepared by the Furies, who lit the married pair to it with torches, stolen from a funeral procession. Then an owl flew up from its dark hole to sit on the roof directly above their bed. All that night it interrupted their joy, alternating little mewing cries with prophetic screams of catastrophe. And this was the accompaniment of omens when Tereus, the great king of Thrace, married Procne and begot Itius. But all Thrace rejoiced. Thereafter, the day of their wedding and the prince's birthday were annual jubilees for the whole nation. So ignorant are men. Five years passed. Then Procne spoke to her husband, stroking his face, saying, If you love me, give me the perfect gift, a sight of my sister. Let me visit her, or better still, let her visit us. Go. Promise my father her stay here can be just as brief as he pleases. At a command from Tereus, oar and sail brought him to Athens. There King Pandion greeted his son-in-law, Tereus began to explain his unexpected arrival, how Procne longed for one glimpse of her sister, Philomela. But just as he was promising the immediate return of Philomela, once the two had met, there, mid-sentence, Philomela herself, arrayed in the wealth of a kingdom, entered. Still unaware that her own beauty was the most astounding of her jewels, she looked like one of those elfin queens you hear about, flitting through the depths of the forests. Tereus felt his blood alter thickly. Suddenly he himself was like a forest when a drought wind explodes it into a firestorm. She was to blame, her beauty, but more the king's uncontrollable body. Thracians are sexually insatiable and the lust that took hold of him now combined the elemental forces of his national character and his own. His first thought was, buy her attendants and her nurses with bribes, then turn the girl's own head with priceless gifts, cash in your whole kingdom for her. His next thought was simply to grab her and carry her off, then fight to keep her, he was the puppet of instant obsession. No insane plan gave him pause if it promised to make her his. All of a sudden, wildly impatient, he pressed Pandion again with Procne's request, the glove of his own greed. The passion made him persuasive. 
When he went too far, he swore Procne sickened to see her sister. He even wept as he spoke, as if he had brought her tears with him, as well as her pleading words. God in heaven, how blind men are. Everybody who witnessed it marveled at what this man would do for his wife's sake, the length he would go to. And yet the acting was irresistible. Philomela was overwhelmed. She wept too, hugging her father, pleading through her tears. As he loved her and lived for her happiness, she begged him to grant her this chance, the worst that any woman ever suffered. Tereus stared at the princess, imagining her body in his arms. His lust was like an iron furnace, first black, then crimson, then white, as he watched her kiss and caress her father. He wished himself her father, in which case his intent would have been no less wicked. King Pandion surrendered at last to the doubled passion of his daughters. Ecstatic, Philomela wept and thanked him for his permission, as if he had bestowed some enormous prize on her and her sister, rather than condemned them, as he had, to the fate that would destroy them both. The sun went down. A royal banquet glittered and steamed. The guests, replete, slept. Only the Thracian king, Tereus, tossed, remembering Philomela's every gesture, remembering her lips, her voice, her hair, her hands, her glances, and seeming to see every part her garments concealed, just as he wanted it. So he fed his lust and stared at the darkness. Dawn lit the wharf at last for their departure, and now King Pandion implored his son-in-law to guard his charge. I lend her to you, because you and she and her sister were persuasive. By your honor, by the gods, by the bond between us. Protect her like a father. Send her home soon, this darling of my old age. Time will seem to have stopped till I see her again. Philomela, come back soon if you love me. Your sister's absence alone is more than enough. The king embraced his daughter and wept. Then asked both Tereus and the girl to give him their hands as seals of their promise. He joined their hands together, beseeching them to carry his blessing to his far-off daughter and his grandson. There the father choked in his goodbye. His voice collapsed into sobs, overwhelmed of a sudden by fear, inexplicable, icy, a goose flesh of foreboding. The oars bent and the wake broadened behind the painted ship. Philomela watched the land sinking, but Tereus laughed softly. And he says, I've won. My prayers are granted. She is mine. He was in a fever for the delights that he deferred, only with difficulty. And the nape of her neck was aware of his eyes as he gloated on her, like an eagle that has hoisted a hair in its grip to its inescapable tower. The moment the ship touched his own shore, Tereus lifted Philomela onto a horse and hurried her to a fort behind high walls hidden in a deep forest, and there he imprisoned her. Bewildered and defenseless, failing to understand anything, and in a growing fear of everything, she begged him to bring her to her sister. His answer was to rape her, 
ignoring her screams to her father, to her sister, to the gods. Afterwards, she crouched in a heap, shuddering, like a lamb still clinging to life after the wolf has savaged it, and for some reason dropped it. Or like a dove, a bloody rag, still alive under the talons that stand on it. Then, like a woman in mourning, she gouged her arms with her nails, she clawed her hair, and pounded her breasts with her fists, shrieking at him, You disgusting savage, you sadistic monster, the oaths my father bound you to, were they meaningless? Do you remember his tears? You are inhuman. You couldn't understand them. What about my sister waiting for me? What about me? What about my life? What about your marriage? You have dragged us all into your bestial pit. How can my sister think of me now? Your crime is only half done. Kill me and complete it. Why didn't you kill me first before you destroyed me that other way? Then my ghost at least would have been innocent. But the gods are watching. If they bother to notice what has happened, if they are more than the puffs of air that go with their names, then you will answer for this. I may be lost. You have taken whatever life I may have had and thrown it in the sewer, but I have my voice and shame will not stop me. I shall tell everything to your people, yes, to all Thrace. Even if you keep me here, every leaf in this forest will become a tongue to tell my story. The dumb rocks will witness all heaven will be my jury. Every god in heaven will judge you. Terius was astonished to be defied and raged at and insulted by a human being and startled by the sudden clutch of fear as her words went home, speechless, mindless, in a confusion of fear and fury. He hauled her up by the hair, twisted her arms behind her back and bound them, and then drew her sword. She saw that, as if she were eager, and bent her head backwards, and closed her eyes, offering her throat to the blade still calling to her father and to the gods, and still trying to curse him as he caught her tongue with bronze pincers, dragged it out to its full length, and cut it off at the root. The stump recoiled, silenced, into the back of her throat, but the tongue squirmed in the dust, babbling on, shaping words that were now soundless. It writhed like a snake's tail, freshly cut off striving to reach her feet in its death struggle. After this, again and again, though I can hardly bear to think about it, let alone believe it, the obsessed king, like an automaton, returned to the body he had mutilated for his gruesome pleasure. Then, stuffing the whole hideous business deep among his secrets, he came home, smooth-faced to his wife, when she asked for her sister, he gave her the tale that he had prepared. She was dead, and his grief as he wept convinced everybody. Procne stripped off her royal garments and wrapped herself in black. She built a tomb without a body for her sister, and there she made offerings to a ghost that did not exist, mourning the fate of a sister who endured a fate utterly different.
A year went by. Philomela, staring at the massive stone walls and stared at by her guards, was still helpless, locked up in her dumbness and her prison. But frustration, prolonged, begets invention, and a vengeful anger nurses it. She set up a Thracian loom and wove on a fabric scarlet symbols that told in detail what had happened to her. A servant, who understood her gestures but knew nothing of what she carried, took this gift to Procne, the queen. The tyrant's wife unrolled the tapestry and saw the only interpretation was the ruin of her life. She sat there, silent and unmoving, as if she thought of something else entirely. In those moments her restraint was superhuman. But grief so sudden, so huge, made mere words seem paltry. None could lift her lips one drop of its bitterness, and tears were pushed aside by the devouring single idea of revenge. Revenge had swallowed her whole being. She had plunged into a labyrinth of plotting where evil and good, right and wrong, forgot their differences. Now came the festival of Bacchus, celebrated every third year by the young women of Thrace. The rites were performed at night. All night long the din of symbols deafened the city. Dressed as a worshipper, Procne joined the uproar. With a light spear, vine leaves round her head, and a deer pelt slung over her left shoulder, she became a Bacchante among her attendants. Berserk, she hurled herself through the darkness, terrifying, as if possessed by the gods' frenzy. In fact, she was crazy with grief. So she found the hidden fort in the forest, and with howls to the gods, her troop tore down the gate, and Procne freed her sister, disguised her, disguised her as a bacante, and brought her home to the palace. Philomela felt she might die of sheer fear when she realized she was in the house of her ravisher. But Procne, shut in the safety of her own chamber, bared her sister's face and embraced her. Philomela twisted away. Shame tortured her. She would not look at her sister, as if she herself were to blame for the king's depravity. So she fixed her eyes on the ground like a madwoman. While her gestures flailed uselessly to tell the gods all that Terius had done to her, doubling his cruelty on her body, despoiling her name forever, Procne took her shoulders and shook her. She was out of her mind with anger, saying, Tears can't help us, only the sword, or if it exists, something more pitiless even than the sword. Oh, my sister, nothing now can soften the death Terius is going to die. Let me see this palace, one flame, and Terius a blazing insect in it, making it brighter. Let me break his jaw, hang him up by his tongue, and saw it through with a broken knife. Then dig his eyes from their holes. Give me the strength, you gods, to twist his hips and shoulders from their sockets, and butcher the limbs off his trunk, till his soul for the very terror scatter away through the thousand exits. 
Let me kill him. Oh, however we kill him. Our revenge has to be something that will appeal to heaven and hell and stupefy the earth. And while Procne raved, her little boy Itius came in. Her demented idea caught hold of his image. The double of his father, she whispered, silent, her heart ice. She saw what had to be done. Nevertheless, as he ran to her, calling to her, his five-year-old arms pulling at her to be kissed and to kiss her, and chattering lovingly through his loving laughter, her heart shrank. Her fury seemed to be holding its breath for that moment as tears burned her eyes. She felt her love for this child softening her ferocious will, and she turned to harden it, staring at her sister's face. Then looked back at Idias and again at her sister, crying, He tells me all his love, but she has no tongue to utter a word of hers. He can call me mother, but she cannot call me sister. This is the man you have married, O daughter of Pandion. You are your father's shame and his despair. To love this monster Terius or pity him, it must be a monster. It is monstrous. And catching her boy Idias by the arm, she gave herself no more time to weaken. Like a tiger on the banks of the Ganges, taking a new-dropped fawn, she dragged him into a far cellar of the palace. He saw what was coming. He tried to clasp her neck, screaming, Mama, Mama. But staring into his face, Procne pushed the sword through his chest. Then, though that wound was fatal enough, slashed his throat. Now the two sisters ripped the hot little body into pulsating gobbets. The room was awash with blood as they cooked his remains, some of it gasping in bronze pots, some weeping on spits. And what follows here, the cannibal revenge feast, um, is something that occurs quite often, not just in the classical world and in those stories. And I leave it to others, I haven't had the chance to yet, uh, but I leave it to others to find out uh, if anyone has written a study about these things, about where these stories about poisoned family, uh, poisoned marriages, uh, women who are put in such position that, uh, like Medea, killing their children is the only thing they can do to get any attention for their own plight. Um, how all of this became such a uh, such a thread that you can find uh, in stories all over the place. And so there you go. Uh, the little boy is murdered, and he's being put into the pot. And now it's time for the revenge feast. A feast followed. Procne invited one guest only, her husband. She called it a ritual peculiar to her native land and special for this day. When the wife served her lord without attendant or servant, Terius, ignorant and happy, lolled on the throne of his ancestors and swallowed with smiles and swallowed with smiles all his posterity as Procne served it up. 
He was so happy he called for his son to join him, saying, Where is Itius? Bring him. Procne could not restrain herself any longer. This was her moment to see him fall helpless onto the spike in the pit that she had dug for him. Your son, she said, is here already. He is here inside. He could not be closer to you. And I think, uh, as Ovid has it, she says, you have within all we ha you have within you the one that you seek. Terius, though, was mystified. He suspected some joke. Perhaps Idias was hiding under his throne. Idias, he called out again, come out, show yourself. The door banged wide open. Philomela burst in the throne room, her hair and gown bloody. She rushed forward and her dismembering hands, red to the elbows, jammed into the face of Terius, a crimson dripping ball, the head of Idias. For a moment his brain refused to make any sense of it, but the joy she could not speak, Philomela released in a scream. Then it was his turn. His roar tore itself out of every fiber in his body. He heaved the table aside, shouting for the Furies to come up out of hell with their snakeheads. He tugged at his ribcage as if he might writhe himself open to empty out what he had eaten. He staggered about, sobbing that he was the tomb of his boy, then gripped his sword hilt and steadied himself as he saw the sisters running. Now his bellow was as homicidal as it was anguished. He came after them, and they who had been running seemed to be flying, and suddenly they were flying. One swerved on wings into the forest. The other, with the blood still on her breast, flew up under the eaves of the palace, and Terius charged blind, in his delirium of grief and vengeance, no longer caring what happened. He, too, was suddenly flying, on his head and shoulders a crest of feathers, instead of a sword, a long curved beak, like a warrior transfigured with battle frenzy, dashing into battle. He had become a hoopo. Philomela mourned in the forest, a nightingale. Procne lamented round and round the palace, a swallow. And so just as Ovid has it, you end each story by saying, so-and-so became this, so-and-so became that. That is the metamorphoses. Um, you can see why anyone who's been listening to the episodes of Hughes' poetry here, why this story might be rendered so powerfully by him. And you can see why, uh, even see why someone as different than him as T.S. Eliot would have used uh, this story in The Wasteland, a poem that is uh, overstuffed with uh, anxieties over romantic love and sexuality and lust and uh, obsession and being besotted with this or that thing. Um, and that is sort of uh, where we leave Ted Hughes, I suppose, um, the life that he chose to make and the life that uh, you might say like uh, like some of these characters the the, the sense of of fate um, of, uh, of 
having lived through so much tragedy, um, must have attracted him to stories like these. And um, I really don't know what else to say about it other than that. Um, and so that the very next episode we do on Hughes will finally take us to that moment in 1998 when his book of poems called Birthday Letters was finally published and he felt that it was time to show the world or at least exercise the, the, the event itself just for himself as a personal release um, where he could finally give his side of the story of his relationship with Sylvia Plath. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.